saved. And depending on how God leads, I'm just sort of kind of going from service to service. I know the Lord wants me to do this message tonight, and then we'll see how He leads next Wednesday or whatever. Um, but we're going to be dealing with theology in everyday life. Okay? Theology in everyday life. Uh, tonight's subject is marriage. And we're going to do um, theology in the area of marriage, everyday life. Amen. I'm in the process of taking a course uh, by Stephen Otterburn, a theology course, Stephen Otterburn, Otterburn, to give him credit, amen, uh, for this particular aspect of theology on marriage. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now, everybody that's called to preach, how many, how many is that? Women, men, all men and women, lift your hand if you're called to preach. Okay. It's amazing, you know. One service, I got about a half a dozen hands. And then the next service, I only got one or two. So I guess everybody's still trying to figure it out. Amen. But if you're called to preach, you have to constantly study and, and constantly grow. Because if you don't, you will decline. You will decline. You have to maintain constant, constant study. Grow. If you grow, the people will grow. So amen. I always want to give myself to the Word of the Lord and study so that I can grow and that you can grow. Alright, theology in everyday life, the area of marriage, Proverbs 10, amen, and verse 10. If you have it, say praise the Lord. Now you might want to take some notes and maybe it will help you to have a better marriage. How many of y'all want a good marriage? Amen. Hallelujah. You're going to be surprised because so many things that we think, we say, we believe, and sometimes the way we interpret Scripture is not accurate. And uh, so we're going to be talking about, first of all, misinterpretations of Scripture. Okay? So in Proverbs 10 and verse 10, it says this, He that winketh with the eye causeth sorrow, <clears throat> but a prating fool shall fall. He that winketh with the eye causeth sorrow. You see that? But a prating fool shall fall. First misinterpretation of Scripture is peacekeeping instead of peacemaking. Peacekeeping instead of peacemaking. Now God has not called us to peacekeeping. He has called us to peacemaking. And a lot of times people interpret the Bible when they talk about peace. Well, I just need to keep the peace. Okay, that's not what the Bible's called us to do. It's called us to keep, not to keep the peace, but to make peace. It's a big difference. Okay. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You right now and we ask Your blessing to be upon the teaching of Your Holy Word. God, I rely upon Your inspiration, Your anointing, God, tonight to teach. Thank You, Father God. I pray over this congregation tonight that Your Spirit would move in and through us. 
Enable us to hear and to receive your word, God. Instruct us, Lord, that we may grow. We pray for peace in the marriages that are here. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. Peacekeeping versus peacemaking. Okay? Uh, if you take the approach in your marriage of peacekeeping, That means that you're willing to live with any situation as long as you can just keep the peace. Okay? If you are a peacekeeper, that means at times then you will violate this scripture here in verse 10 when it says, He that winketh with the eye causes sorrow. See, there are a lot of people in marriage, they try to keep the peace. So they'll wink the eye, you know. They'll just accept things the way they are. Even if they're wrong. And they will say, well, God has called me to keep the peace. No, He didn't call you to keep the peace. He called you to make peace. It's a big difference. So if we go about life trying to keep the peace all the time at any cost that will cause you and I, now obviously it's for everybody, Some at some point you're all probably going to get married if you're not married yet. Okay? And so it's for everybody here. But even if it's not marriage, this still applies. Or you go through life and you're always trying to keep the peace. So you wink at that that's wrong and you wink at that that's wrong and you start accepting things that are not right just so you can keep the peace. And again, it doesn't just apply to marriage, but I'm teaching on marriage. If you take that approach, you will not honor God. See, that's what I'm saying. There's a misinterpretation to peace in the Bible. How many men or women in marriage today make decisions, wink the eye, accept things the way they are because they don't want to fight anymore. So they just we're just going to accept it, you know, and just so long as I can keep the peace, we're going to make this decision. And even if it's wrong, just for the sake of keeping peace. So, very important that we understand that we're not called just to keep the peace. That means just wink the eye and accept things for the way they are. This is very important. Don't Wouldn't you say that it is. Amen? Sometimes you and I need to disturb the peace before you can do what? Before you can make peace. Look at your neighbor and say, I need to disturb the peace sometime in order to make peace. Because when you make peace, okay, you disturb the peace, you say, something. I'm not accepting this. This isn't right. Okay? Well, you may have a huge fight as a result of disturbing that peace, but at least you're not winking the eye and accepting something that is wrong in the house. Amen? Do you get that? It, it, the Bible says if we wink the eye, if we just accept things and just go with them, even if they're wrong. 
we create sorrow. It is the, not the answer. It does not give you long-term peace. In fact, what will happen is you'll start walking in deception. Amen? Because we got peace in our house, but at what price? Did you surrender to something that was wrong? Did you surrender to the enemy? Did you make a decision that took you out of the will of God just so there wouldn't be conflict in your marriage? The Bible says you winked the eye. You accepted it. And it's going to create sorrow. So we, we are called to be peacemakers. That means I've got to sometimes, and my wife sometimes has to disturb the peace in my house. Amen. If something's not right, Sister Christina needs to disturb this peace. Amen. And something's not right in my marriage. I need to disturb the peace at times. There's something going on with my kids that aren't right. I have to be willing to disturb the peace in my family because my kids are not doing what they're supposed to do. Say, well, I'm just not going to say anything because I don't want a big fight in the house. You know, we're called to keep the peace. No, we're not. We're called to make peace. So at times... You and I have to deal with situations. You have to deal with situations, okay? And so do I. Whether it be in our marriage or whether it be in our children, things that are not right, sometimes you got to be willing to fight for what... Are you with me here? For what is right. You say, no, we're not just going to cover this up. We're not just going to act like everything is okay here and hope it goes away. Amen? Like the red-headed Irishman, red-headed Irishman says, we're going to have peace in my house even if i got to fight for it. You no, know, that's not a verse in the Bible, but I think he was accurate. So we're not willing to accept everything in our marriage, everything in our house, everything in our kids. Sometimes you got to disturb the peace in order to have lasting and true peace. Everybody said amen. All right, look at your neighbor and say, we're peacemakers, not peacekeepers. You know who God honors? God doesn't honor the peacekeepers that wink the eye. God honors the peacemakers. Which means you and I just can't let things go. You can't. You cannot approach your marriage or your home that way. I'm just going to let it go because I just want to keep the peace. You can't do that. Because if we just let things go that are wrong, then we no longer honor God. Right? Is everybody with me here? You and I can't just let things happen in life. Just let them happen. No, you can't take that approach of just letting things happen in life. Are you with me here? You have to address them. You do. Now sometimes, when you've been at this for a while, Sister Christine and I have been at this for a long time, about 30-something years, I think. She's got her head down. She went. Anyway, when you've been at this for a while, 
with kids or with marriage and everything, sometimes you get to a point, I'm just tired of fighting. I just, whatever it takes to have peace in my house, I'm just going to let him have his way. Whatever it takes to keep peace in my house, I'm just going to let her have her way. I'm just going to let the kids do whatever they want to do because I am so tired of fighting this battle. Amen? And sometimes one of the spouses, they quit. And the other spouse is still fighting. And they're saying, come on, man, we can't take this approach of just quitting, you know, stop fighting and take the approach of just for the sake of peace, allow things that should be addressed. You understand what I'm telling you? And if you're a spouse and you're still fighting, and your spouse, the other spouse is not fighting for what is right, that's hard. So I'm addressing all of us tonight. The Word of God's addressing all of us tonight. Don't wink the eye. Don't cover up. Don't act like nothing's wrong. Don't, don't be willing to just keep the peace for the sake of anything. Sometimes you've got to keep fighting and you've got to fight on a daily basis and until there is change that comes, until things are right in the house with the kids, with the marriage. You are not, listen, you are not out of the will of God when you fight for what is right. Even if it means there's constant conflict, if you are fighting for what is right, God is going to honor you because you are a peacemaker. You're looking for true peace, not some kind of superficial, phony, unreal peace. You with me here today? You can't stop fighting for what's right. Well, I'm tired of fighting with him. <coughs> Sometimes, lady, you have to fight with him. So what I didn't think God likes fighting. See, we misinterpret the Bible. Sometimes you've got to fight with everything in you to be right with God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Hallelujah. There's some things that have to be addressed. And we'll get to it a little bit later on in the lesson. But you know what a lot of times people do? They let things go on 10, 15 years. And then after 10 or 15 years of letting things go on, just letting things happen, they finally get to a point they say, I'm fed up, I'm done, I'm out the door. Think about this. And I'll repeat this again later on. But if you allow something that is not right to go on for 10, 15, 20 years, and then you get to a point and say, I'm done, I'm fed up, I'm out the door. You know what you did? You trained your spouse to do that. That's just exactly what you did. Because you allowed them to continue to do something that which was wrong. And it was evil and it was in your house and God didn't want it there. But for the sake of keeping the peace... You just left it alone. And now you blow up and you say, I've had enough of this. And boom, I'm out the door. You have to stop training your spouse to continue to be in that pattern that they're in if it's wrong. At some point, you got to put your foot down and you have to address it. And you have to say, yes, I want peace. But not at any cost. Amen? I'm, I'm going to make peace, 
But that's only when we have the solution and the answer to something that is not right. And until I have that truth, amen, until things are right, I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep fighting. And God's going to honor that. When you've been married a long time, I'm telling you, sometimes you get tired. You say, okay. I guess I'm just going to have to accept it. No, you don't have to accept it. You don't have to accept it. Is everybody awake? Look at your name say, we're peacemakers, not peacekeepers. This doctor here, he talked about a story about a woman that he counseled. And the way she handled this was beautifully. She got married to a man. And on their wedding night, he poured out a joint. And he started smoking the joint on his wedding night. Now, if she took the approach of peacekeeping, she said, oh, go ahead. You know, I'm married to you. I've got to accept you the way you are. But no, she looked at him and she said, she addressed it. She said, that's not the man that I married. Okay. And she put, gave him an ultimatum. On her wedding night, you are not, this is not the man that I married. Amen. So if you want to continue to be married to me, then you're going to have to be the man that I married. And a pot smoking man is not who I married. And here's what she said. She said, you sure would hate for your friends to find out that you didn't satisfy me on your wedding night, wouldn't you? He got rid of the dope. What I'm telling you is that woman put her foot down and said, that's not happening in my house. Amen? And I know this is the wedding night and it's the honeymoon and everything, but it's fixing to be over here and you're fixing to go back and face your friends and you're going to have to explain to them how it only lasted. Your honeymoon. You hear what I'm telling you? Okay, so what was she? She was a peacemaker. Not a peacekeeper. It takes courage. It takes strength to be a peacemaker. To look at people and say, that's wrong. That is not acceptable. Okay? Now, some of you are married to unbelievers. If you're married to them, you still have a right to be a peacemaker. And not a peacekeeper. In fact, you are called to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Now the Bible tells you live before them. Amen. A righteous and godly and holy life. A meek and quiet spirit. But the Bible doesn't tell us that you have to accept things that are wrong in your house. Somebody said amen. So God has not called us to be peacekeepers. He's called us to be peacemakers. Go to the book of James. <laughs> New Testament, really the book of James and the New Testament 
is the book of wisdom. It is the book of Proverbs in the New Testament. Okay. Somebody said amen. amen. Sort of at the end of the New Testament. Now look what James says. The wording he uses, verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. The fruit of righteousness is sown of them that what? Make peace. Not keep the peace. Make peace. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, bold reproof is necessary. We can't wink the eye. Right? Just to try to keep the peace. Now, I don't want you to lift your hands, but how many of y'all tried that approach through the years? I'm just going to keep the peace, man. I don't want to fight with him. I don't want to fight with her. Did you know you were dishonoring God if you did that? If you did not take a stand and boldly reprove that, and you just kind of wink the eye, you know, it'll be okay. God is not honored by that. That's why I say this is a misinterpretation of the Scripture. Because we think we have to be peacekeepers. God didn't call you to be a peacekeeper. That means at any cost, He called us to be peacemakers. Find long-lasting true peace by fighting for what is right. Hallelujah. Say praise the Lord. And sometimes you have to look at your wife. You look at your husband and say, this is not right. I'm not doing this. Okay? So you don't fall for the lie or the philosophy, peacekeepers. Because you will find out eventually if you're willing to do anything, accept anything, just to keep the peace. Just to keep them from going bonkers on you and throwing stuff. Pastor, I know if I boldly rebuke this, if I address this, if I take a stand, furniture is going to fly. Let the furniture fly. Let it fly. Because you're not supposed to be a peacekeeper. You're supposed to be a peacemaker. Hallelujah. Now pray about it. Pray about it, even fast about it at times, how to handle a situation. Amen. But at some point, you can't continue to train your spouse by allowing them to be and do things that you know is not right. You're, giving, you're just training them to have bad habits. What bothers you about your spouse? Is it they're drinking? But they tell you to go and buy the beer. And so you go buy the beer. Why? To keep the peace. You're wrong. You with me here? Okay, amen. Praise the Lord. He said, well, I'm a grown man. I can do what I want to do. Yeah, but I live in this house too. Sometimes you've got to get a little bit of courage about you, Right? And I think, well, they, he's going to kick me out and kick me to the curb. Maybe. Maybe not. 
Maybe he'll change. Maybe she'll change. Somebody say praise the Lord. I think all women need to be asked this question. You have not been married to a man before and you're fixing to get married to this man. Will you obey him? You've been living on your own, calling your own shots, doing your own thing, and you're going to get married? Can you obey? Can you submit to him? And then you have to ask the next question to the man. Are you willing to die for it? Die to yourself. Say praise the Lord. Okay, so look at your number say, I'm a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Can you imagine what a crazy church this would be if I winked the eye at everything that's bad that's wrong in this church and say, well, I just want to keep the peace. And God, you'd bust my head. Amen? So I'm just what I'm trying to show you is that there's misinterpretations to the Word of God. We just need to stick with the Bible. Okay? Next, next, next point. Next point. You ever heard anybody say, well, I just don't want to hurt anybody. You know, you know the Bible says we're not to hurt, we're not supposed to hurt anybody. Oh, it does. Does the does the Bible tell you that we're not supposed to ever hurt anybody? We're a Christian, right? We're Christians. We're not supposed to hurt anybody, Bishop. Man, sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, as a Christian, I'm not supposed to hurt anybody. Oh, yeah, sounds real good. But it's not biblical. It's a misinterpretation of the Bible. Amen. Let's look at the Word of the Lord. Proverbs, still in the book of Proverbs, the book of Wisdom, 27 and 6. Are you there? Okay. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. What are wounds? That means somebody got hurt. Okay, so this idea then that we're Christians and we're, we're supposed to never hurt anybody is not true. That's not what the Bible says. All hurt, brothers and sisters, is not harmful. There is some hurt that the Bible says is faithful. See, a true, a true friend, and obviously if you're married, hopefully that your wife or your husband or your husband, that you two together are best friends. That you're not just husband and wife, but you're best friends. You know what a friend is, right? Biblically, a friend is this. It's based on two things. Self-revelation and helping presence. Those two things. When you study God being a friend, God revealed Himself, self-revelation, and helping presence. So when you are truly a friend of somebody, you know, hopefully, again, in your marriage, that your marriage, husband and wife, 
you are best friends. That means there's a self-revelation. You reveal to that person who you are. And then there's this helping presence that comes in that friendship. So since I'm talking about marriage tonight, that means sometimes I have to be willing to wound her to be faithful. Sometimes she has to be willing to wound me, which means to hurt me. Woo, hallelujah. And I'm not talking about picking up a club, you know, or a bat or anything like that. But, but what the point is, is this misinterpretation of Scripture. Well, that we should never hurt anybody is wrong. Okay? Carry it over into church. It is impossible for me to pastor without hurting somebody at some point. It doesn't mean I want to. But because all hurt is not harmful, it is required of me if I'm going to be a faithful friend to you. What I mean is sometimes I've got to tell you the truth even when it hurts. I've got to tell you the truth when you don't want to hear it. I've got to tell you the truth when that would make you want to leave the church and go somewhere else. Amen? Same thing in marriage. All hurt is not harmful. Sometimes you've got to hurt somebody to be a true friend. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. God doesn't want us to enable evil in our house. Y'all believe that? If I'm enabling evil in my house because I don't want to hurt somebody, that's obviously not God. So what we're doing here as I teach you the Word of God is I'm revealing to you the misinterpretation of Scripture. Amen. What has that? Don't lift your hand. But had that thought ever crossed your mind? I'm a Christian. I'm not. I shouldn't ever hurt anybody. Is that kind of the philosophy? Maybe you'd be leaning toward. I mean, it sounds good. Be honest with you. Somebody came to me as you know. I'm I'm the pastor. They came to me. What a pastor! You're not supposed to hurt me, and you're not supposed to hurt anybody in the church because we're Christians. I say, man, that sounds right. You know, because I don't want to hurt anybody. Years and years and years ago, I was in a situation. Now, it's a little bit different. You don't want to hurt. You only want to hurt somebody if it's if it's correct. You don't just go around hurting people just to hurt people. That's not what I'm talking about. There's a difference between hurting people just for the sake of hurting people. But to, 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 correct, uh, to correct a situation that's wrong sometimes requires hurt. And years ago, I hurt somebody in the church. You know, there's always a first. Always a first. Amen. And that tore me up. It tore me up. I'm telling you, I came in this church, I was back there, I was praying to God. I said, God, you know, do you want me to resign? Because I hurt these people. And I'm supposed to be a pastor, and and I don't feel that I should have hurt these people. God did. I did. I was ready to quit the ministry and get out of the ministry because I hurt somebody. Amen. Now, if I hurt them and it wasn't 
based in righteousness, I needed to repent. But the point being is this. It is a misinterpretation of the Word of God to say as Christians, we're not supposed to hurt anybody because the Bible says the wounds of a faithful friend. Amen. If you're a true friend, hallelujah. I want somebody, brother. God help me. I want to see, I want to jump into friendship. Maybe we'll talk about that later. A true friend is going to tell you the truth. See, there's friendship that's negative. There's friendship that's bad. Friendship, a lot of times people are just gathering other people them because they don't feel good about themselves. So they gather other people around them to help them with their own propaganda. They're looking for people to get around them only those who will agree with them because they promote that person's own propaganda. And, and, and so some friendship is negative because it can lead you right out of the will of God. It can, it can strengthen your rebellion. So, there, so all friendship, then, if that's the case. Now, if friendship leads you in the truth and leads you into walking with God, that's a good thing. If it's the other way around and you've only gathered people around you that agree with you because you don't feel good about yourself, it's just good propaganda for yourself. And it causes you to go away from the will of God. What I'm saying is that all friendship has to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if they're a true friend, like I'm a friend of Brother Jonathan Lemons. He's my friend. And there's something wrong in his life and I don't address it because I don't want to hurt him. Then I'm, I'm a negative friend. I'm, I'm the wrong kind of friend because I'm only, I'm only, I'm going along with him. But true friends are going to wound you. True friends are going to tell you the truth when you don't want to hear the truth. Amen. Look at your neighbor and help me preach. Not all hurt is harmful. That means I cannot continue to allow evil in my house because God does not approve of evil being enabled in my house. Amen? So it sounds good, doesn't it? it sounds good, doesn't it? You're a Christian. You're not supposed to hurt anybody. If you ever hear that again, Say the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Why are they all of a sudden kissing you? There's deception by their, behind their action. They're not true friends. They're true friends. They tell you the truth. They tell you what you need to do. They wouldn't agree with your the evil. So if you're a husband and a wife, sometimes a wife has to look at the husband. No, that's wrong. You're wrong. Well, you better get in line. You better come under my authority. You better submit to me. We're going to talk about that one too. That's called unbalanced submission. No, 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 no. This is not a boss-employee 
set up. Where the man says, I'm the man, you better get in your place, you better obey me. Now we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Sometimes you have to hurt somebody if you're going to be a true friend of theirs. Somebody said amen. amen. <laughs> so I don't think we should ever have fights as Christians. You have to sometimes. Amen? Amen. Alright, so the first one was what? Be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Amen. You have to address situations. This one here is, this is, a, is not true, it's a misinterpretation of the Bible to say that we're never supposed to hurt anybody. Y'all are, y'all are real quiet tonight. This is good. I think it's good. Whether you think it's good or not, I think it's good. Third thing, stubborn resistance. There's some people have stubborn resistance, you know. And what will come out of their mouth is something like this. Everybody listening to me real careful? Okay, listen real careful. They make excuses for who they are by saying, if God wanted me to be delivered, if God wanted me to change, He would have changed me. But because, and so, because God hasn't delivered me and God hasn't changed me, it must mean that God wants me to be like this. All that is is stubborn resistance. What you're saying is, I don't want to change, and now I'm going to blame God for my problem. You know? You say, I just, just, this is just who I am, and, I prayed to God about it and I asked God to change me and I asked God to deliver me and He hasn't, so God must want me to be like this. No, He doesn't. Okay. All that does is, is cause people to make excuses. Go to Romans 12. In verse 2. Is everybody there? Okay. Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world. Uh-oh, look at that. You get that? See, be not conformed to this world. That means don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let it conform you. Be not conformed to this world. But be you what? Transformed. Transformed. Trans. That's a movement. It's a movement from one form to another form. How are you going to be transformed? How are you going to be changed? Well, it tells you. By the renewing of your mind. There it is. Instead of stubborn resistance and saying and, you know, coming up with excuses and saying, well, I prayed about this and I fasted about this and God hasn't changed me. 
So I'm just going to keep being who I am. You fail to understand that there's some things about you, there's some things about me that He will not change. And it falls upon you and me to do what? To renew our mind. One translation says that we have to change the way we're thinking. And if you change the way you're thinking, the way you look at the situation, change the way you look at it, change the way you are about the situation, you will find what is that good? Amen. Let's look at it carefully by the word. That you may prove what is good and acceptable and and the perfect will of God. See, God just came and took some of your candy sticks away. Because you walk through life with... Stubborn resistance. And you keep blaming God. Say, okay. No, no. God says, if you're going to change, you got to change the way that you think. God is not going to come and deliver you and change you. You are responsible and I'm responsible for ch- some changes for ourselves. And when we do, then we're going to find out what is the good. And, and acceptable and perfect will of God. Hallelujah. How many people today come to church and they live in this stubborn resistance? If God wanted me to be a different person, He would change me. No, He won't. He won't. He'll give you His Spirit. He'll give you His Word. He'll give you all the tools. But the Bible says it's you and I that have to renew our minds. We have to change the way that we think and look at things and situations that are saying, no, that's not right. I've got to change. Say amen. <clears throat> a lot of times there's a, there's a standoff, man. I'm not changing. I'm not changing. I prayed about this and I know I'm right because God didn't change me. You're kidding me. What you just came, what came out of your mouth was this. You are declaring your own stubborn resistance to recognize I need to change the way that I think. Amen? It's not God's problem. I can't blame God. I can't point a finger at God and say, well, God didn't deliver me. God didn't change me. And give myself a license to continue. Amen. To do what's wrong. Are y'all okay up there? So it is a misinterpretation of the Scripture that for us to think that God is going to come and change everything about us and deliver us from everything. As we submit to the will of God, we change the way we think, then God is going to come and reveal His will to us. <laughs> I mean, how many of us have ever used that excuse? Well, I prayed about it and God didn't change me. 
He wasn't supposed to. You were supposed to. I have a responsibility to change. You have a responsibility to change. Amen. You, you got to change the way you're looking at things. You're looking at things wrong. Well, I know I'm right because God didn't come and strike me down with a light, bolt of lightning. He wasn't supposed to. I'm not dead yet. Everybody okay? Okay. Somebody said praise the Lord. All right, go let go to Ephesians five. Let's talk about the next one. Unbalanced submission. So what have we already covered? Peacemakers, not peacekeepers. What was the next one? The misinterpretation of Scripture says if we're Christians, we won't hurt anybody. What's the third one? Stubborn resistance. God's going to change me. And because He didn't, that's, this must be who He wants me to be. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5. Please turn there. I mean, y'all haven't ever said these things, right? You've never heard anybody say them, have you? They're misinterpretations of the Scripture. Okay, Ephesians 5. Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Here we go, man. This is the, you know, this is the club. And me, we, we men sometimes use against our wife. The Bible says you're supposed to submit to me. Yeah, it does. He, he, that's correct. But do you realize that you can say truth in an untruthful way? You can speak the truth and it be spoken in an untruthful way. Because the Bible is very clear that the woman is supposed to submit to her husband. If you study the words very carefully, when it talks about the submission of a child to the parents, the word that is used there is absolute, total obedience without question. All you kids living underneath the house, your roof of your parents, when they tell you something, now obviously I'm not saying if they tell you something they're going against the Word of God. That's not. You don't have to do that. But as long as it doesn't violate the Word of God, when they tell you to do things that are not, they're not wrong, then as a child you have to have submission to the point it's without question. You do what you're told. But when the word submission is used for a husband and a wife, it's not the same. When I tell Sister Christina to do something, she doesn't have to obey that without question. Because she's not a child. She's an adult. She's my wife. So when I tell my wife to do something, she can question that. And that doesn't mean that she's in rebellion. If you think the submission the Bible talks about a husband over a wife is absolute and total without question, 
and he can order you around like a boss orders an employee, which is another example of absolute submission. Biblically, when an employee tells you to do something, you have to do it without question. Children and employees. But a husband and a wife relationship, it is not like that. It, look at your neighbor and help me preach. Say, it's not a boss employee relationship. My wife can question what I'm asking her to do if it is not right. Okay? So, when you study the book of Ephesians according to the doctor, I haven't had a chance to take uh, the time to count all of these, okay? But according to the doctor, the word is used 70 times. The wife is supposed to submit to the husband. And I'm not sure if that's the whole Bible or the book of Ephesians. You can get a concordance and check it out. But, let's keep reading. Okay. 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Okay, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. Stop. So according to Dr. 70 times the word subject or submission some some form is used, is applied to the wife. But he said approximately 140 times Twice as much. The man is called on to die to himself. Now the question is, when you point your finger at your wife to you tell her, you must submit. Well, you're speaking truth, but it's in an untruthful way. <laughs> mm. The question is, which is easier? Is it easier for my wife to submit to me? Or is it easier for me to die for her? That's why about 140 times, according to the doctor, it says it's a reference to some form that I have to die to myself. Let's read the verse then. That clarifies the whole thing. Verse 21, Ephesians 5.21 Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. See, when you take it in context as a whole, when that man, 140 times, is willing to die to himself for her, then the 70 times it's spoken to her that she needs to submit to him. What do you think is going to happen? You got a man that's going to put his wife first. You got a man that's going to put his family first. And he's going to be willing to die to himself. I promise you, I have yet to find a woman in the church that would have a problem submitting to that kind of man. That's why it says submit one to another. Amen. If I'm willing to die to myself for her, 
she will have no problem in submitting to me. Because it's harder for me as a man to die to myself. Submit one to another. That's what the Bible teaches. Amen. So before we as men walk around with that big old stick, you're supposed to submit to me. I'm the man of the house. You're supposed to do everything I tell you. Go everywhere I want you to go. Make That is not in the Bible. And then you can ask the man, what you're doing right now, is that proving to me that you're willing to die for me? Are you willing to die to yourself? Are you showing me by your life that you're willing to do that? See, it is not, I will repeat myself, it is not a boss-employee arrangement in marriage. Hallelujah. So the next time your husband says, you have to submit to me. Next time, point the finger at them and say, are you willing to die to yourself for me? And if not, I don't have to do everything you tell me. According to the Word of God. Now that doesn't mean get a rebellious spirit and a bad attitude. Okay, we don't want to give you license to do that because you might come to church with black eyes and bloody nose. You know? But then that's only proof he's not the man he's supposed to be. He's willing to treat you like that. Amen? So this is, this, this is a misinterpretation of the Scripture when a man says the woman has to submit to the husband, yes, that's truth, but it's spoken in an untruthful way. Do you love your wife enough that you would die for her? How about just die to yourself? The things are, they will completely change, won't they? Hallelujah. Oh, God. It's amazing, isn't it? What's in the Word of God? Defining a Christian marriage. The divorce rate for Christians is the same as it is for marriages in the world. According to the doctor theology, he says 50% of Christian marriages end up in divorce and it's basically the same in the world. 50% end up in divorce. And we'll talk about the tragedy of divorce in just a minute. Okay. But then we have another statistic he gives and he says 75% of marriages that I'm preaching to tonight. Because the way he puts it, 75% of the marriages that a pastor preaches to on any given service, 75% of those marriages are miserable. 
that means only 25% of Christian marriages. You might not be in divorce, but you are absolutely, totally miserable being married. How many of you know it's not God's will for you to be miserable in your marriage? <laughs> that blows my mind that three quarters of you, of course, you know, this is a small church getting smaller by the day. <laughs> you know, but to think about it, man, 75% of the people I'm preaching to tonight, you're miserable in your marriage. You're just, you're just <coughs> sticking, sticking it out. You're just holding on to the bitter end, you know. And maybe it's when the kids all grow up and then we'll go our separate ways. No, it's more like a business arrangement. God doesn't want us to be miserable. Aren't you glad this one of the services we're not asking to lift your hand? <laughs> what I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, is that the 75%... Now, hope prayerfully, I'm a good pastor. Maybe I do such a good job that Maybe that's down 50%, 25%. May I'm doing such a good job that, okay, probably not. Probably not. But think about it. The 75% of you tonight are not in a good place. You're not in a good place. But you come to church, you put on the fronts, and you act like everything's wonderful. Praise the Lord God. Hate each other. It's miserable, man. Maybe hate's too strong a word. Just not in a good place. Go to Jeremiah six fourteen. So if you're miserable tonight in marriage. <laughs> you want to fix your marriage. You say, Jeremiah 6.14, say, God, I just, I just want to fix my marriage. And, okay, so how do we go about fixing the marriage? Well, we can take this approach in Jeremiah 6.14. Amen. He says, they have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. See, we can, what I'm saying is we can treat this. I can give you a superficial answer to your problem. Okay? Which is to tell you, there's nothing wrong. Everything's okay. It's all right. No, say peace, peace. When there is no peace, just to, to, to say to somebody that there's nothing wrong, act like nothing's wrong. As a pastor, are you in your marriage? To stay miserable in that marriage because nobody wants to accept the fact, the reality. 
that there's something wrong here. That is not the way, again, to fix your marriage. Is It's not saying nothing's wrong. Somebody said amen. amen. Successful marriages. How many of y'all want successful marriage? <coughs> Again, it's not to go back like Jeremiah here is talking about in the 14th verse and act like everything's okay. You all really, all you're doing is kicking the can down the road, you know? Okay, I got a problem. I know, but I'm going to kick it down the down the road, and I'll deal with it later. I don't want to deal with it now. He's going to kick the can down the road, and I'm going to act like everything's okay when it's not. The only way to have a successful marriage is to get back to the Bible. Right here. Okay, the first thing before you call the pastor and say, "Hey, pastor, I need you to." Advise me, counsel me. The first thing that you need to do, sorry, you need to do before you have that counseling session with me is you need to get in the Word of God. Get the Bible back in your marriage. And that doesn't mean, you know, well, we go to church. That's important. Yes. To have a successful marriage, you need to go to church. You need to raise your kids in the church. Don't fall for the lies because I don't need church. You need church. You need to raise your kids in the church. You need to bring your family to church. You need to hear the Word of God preached and taught Wednesday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. That's good. But that's not enough to change you. Let me say it again. It, that three times is not enough to change you. If you read your Bible once a week, there will be no change in your life. Twice a week, three times a week, there will be no change in your life. According to this doctor theology, he says... That you have to be in the Word of God a minimum of four times a week for there to be any change in your life. One time, two times, three times is not enough. He says it takes four times a week to be in the Word. If you're constantly, if we're constantly in the Word of God, listen carefully. You're constantly studying the Word of God, constantly reading the Bible, maybe together, at least four times a week. This doctor goes on and talks about it in this course I'm taking. He says it'll cut down on a lot of things. One of the things he says it'll cut down on is pornography. Because you have so saturated your mind with the Word of God, you're so constantly focused on the Word of God. Amen? That it will change you. But it takes a minimum, a minimum of being in the Bible four times. Okay. Somebody say praise the Lord. 
You've got to get the Bible back in to your marriage. You've got to spend time in the Word of God. Well, hello. What else would you expect when you came to church? For me to tell you you're going to have a successful marriage is to tell you you've got to get in the book four times a week. Minimum. If you don't do that, how are you going to have a successful marriage? I mean, brothers and sisters, you and I can act like, you know, well, this guy don't know what he's talking about. This man, brothers and sisters, this course that I'm taking has spent years and years and years and years studying this, gathering facts, statistics. This is real stuff that I'm giving you. It's not some kind of made-up thing. This is real. If you don't spend a minimum of four days, four times a week in your Bible, you will not have a successful marriage. So that, aren't y'all glad y'all come to church? Hey, praise we got one there. Come church Wednesday. Okay. Hallelujah. Get to mark that one off. Sunday morning, mark that one off. Sunday night, mark that. Wow, you got three. All you need is one more. And you're done, man. How many want a successful marriage? Okay, now I'm going to ask you again, but I'm not going to, I don't want you to lift your hand. How many of y'all are in the book four days a week? You spend four times a week in the book, making the Bible the center of your marriage. Hallelujah. How many of y'all want a successful marriage? Well, I need to go to the pastor and I need to have counsel with the pastor. The first question I'm going to ask you, is, I have fine, that's fine, we can meet, we can talk. First question I'm going to ask you, have you got the first one down? And that's you are spending at least four times a week in the Bible. Okay. And if you have it, then I'm going to say, well, y'all go ahead and do that. And when you get that done, then if you still need me, we'll meet. Well, obviously, the next one goes with that one. You have to put Christ into your marriage. Brothers and sisters, this is not theory. Okay, you with me? I'm trying to help you. This is not theory. These are the things that He said you must have in your marriage to have a successful marriage. You must put Christ into your marriage. Question. Is Christ in your life tonight? Say, well, I got the Holy Ghost, Pastor. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about on a daily basis, you know that you're in a relationship. You have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's telling you how to think. He's telling you what to do. He's te- Are you all with me? You're in a fellowship with Him. Christ has to be in the marriage. If He's not in the marriage, you're not going to have a successful marriage. The thing that's kept Sister Christine and I married all these years is Jesus Christ. We're human beings just like you. We face a lot of this stuff I'm preaching tonight. Just like you. But Jesus Christ is the glue that's kept us together for over 30 years. Amen? He uses this example in this course 
about making a pie. He says, I love to make pumpkin pie. Now, I don't know about you, but pumpkin pie, other than maybe sweet potato pie, Sister Nicole, like yours, other than sweet potato pie, pumpkin pie is probably my favorite. Right? I love pumpkin pie, man. But anyway, if you're going to make a pumpkin pie, for it to be a pumpkin pie, you have to have pumpkin in it. You know, there's some, some pies that you buy at the store, it claims to be a certain kind of pie. It don't have any. Apple pie don't have no apples in it. <coughs> pumpkin pie don't have no pumpkin in it. You know? Sweet potato, potato pie don't have no sweet potatoes in it. Right? You're going to make pie if it's going to be pumpkin pie. It's got to have pumpkin in it. Hopefully the kind where you... Are you with me? Not the kind that comes out of the box. Which is okay, but if you want a real pumpkin pie, man, you go buy the pumpkin. You scrape the inside of the pumpkin out. That's a real pumpkin pie. Smith's pumpkin pie. It's probably pumpkin pie, but it's anyway. You know what I'm saying. The point being is this. You can call the pie that you have a pumpkin pie, but if you don't have pumpkin, you don't have pumpkin pie. You can call the life that you have a Christianity, but if Christ is not the center of your life and the center of your home on a daily basis, you don't have a Christian home. Jesus Christ must be in our marriage in order for our marriage to work. That means you've got to get Him back where He belongs. Put Him back in His rightful place. He can't be second. He can't be number two, number three, number four on the list. He's got to be the center of your home for it to work. Amen? So the fact that you bring your family to church, good. The fact that you pray, good. See, I, I would say on a personal level, you come to church is good. But when you're in that prayer room praying, that's even better. Because now you're not just waiting for somebody to spoon feed you. You're getting a relationship with Jesus Christ yourself. Hallelujah. Amen. If you go a whole week without praying, you think you're going to be a strong Christian? You go a week without eating, you're going to be weak. You go a week a week without reading the Word of God, you're going to be a weak Christian. So you've got to get the Word and you've got to get Jesus Christ to the center of your life. In order to have a successful marriage. Real quickly as I come to a close, the impact of divorce. When a person, when a, when a couple ends up in divorce, number one, Malachi, God says this, Malachi says, I hate divorce. He said, I hate putting away. The first thing when a couple, if they end up in divorce, 
they need to realize it is uh, devastating to the children. Before, before you ever consider divorce, okay, it's the I mean, it's the final. It is the last option. Because it is absolutely, totally devastating to those children. You may look at them, they may be little, whatever, and you go through the divorce and it seems like, you know, it looks like they're doing okay. Don't go by outward appearance. See, this is why it's important for you to understand, even if you're married to an unbeliever, God says to you as the believer that's married to an unbeliever, if the unbeliever be, be willing to be married to you, there shouldn't be a divorce. Okay? If you're a believer and he's an unbeliever, the Bible says you stay married with that person as long as they want to stay married because divorce is devastating. 1 Corinthians 7. Devastating to the children. When it first happens, maybe it look like they're doing okay. But listen, brothers and sisters, you watch later on in life. Maybe before they get married or after they get married. For sure after they get married. And see the damaging and destructive destruction because they came out of a broken home, a divorced home. The devastation and destruction that took place in their life. And now they get married and they start having problems in their marriage because they didn't live in a home where they had both the mother and the father. The statistics, 45 to 50% of the people end up in divorce, including Christians. That means when the kids go home, if they are in school, they go home from school, they go home to one parent. The dad's not there. Or the mother's not there. It's devastating for those children. Secondarily, it creates a financial strain on the home. Because if you... Okay. I assume that this means if you have children together. Divorce has taken place. <clears throat> so now, the man go lives in this house and the woman lives here. And the kids probably <coughs> back and forth. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, the financial strain that comes with that? Because you're no longer just trying to support one home. You are now supporting two households with the same income. So it puts a major, major strain economically on your life. Do you have enough income to support two families at the same time? So divorce has very, very serious, devastating consequences. 
destructions emotionally. The, just the devastation emotionally, man. Listen, I, as a pastor, you know, there are a few here that have gone through that. I'm sympathetic to them and compassionate to them. But I can tell you, in, in dealing with people who've experienced divorce, the emotional trauma that they, they're in is just, it's just devastating. You see, I saw one man. He's in the world. He's not in this church. He's in the world. He just recently went through a, a divorce. And the guy's devastated emotionally. He walks around like a zombie, man. So before you think about divorce, you need to think about the emotional devastation and destruction that you'll go through and the other person will go through. Okay, emotional, sometimes physical, and spiritual. Why spiritual, Pastor? You say, well, you know, if how can it affect my, my spirit? Because what happens oftentimes is if you go through divorce, the way the reason why it affects your spirit and it's so devastating to your spirit is because you start blaming God. And you say, God, I serve you. Why didn't you come and fix my marriage? If you're God, you could have fixed this. Why did you allow this to happen? So what happens is you go through a very dark spiritual time in your life where if you're, unless you're extremely spiritually strong, you'll start questioning why did God allow this to happen? He didn't come to fix it. Again, what people fail to understand is that this is probably going to shock you. Maybe not shock you, but surprise you. Maybe you've never thought about it. But God is not required to fix everything. That, in and of itself, is a misinterpretation of the Scripture. To, to, to live in this mindset, well, God's, you know, I serve Him. And He's supposed to fix everything. then you don't know that that's a false interpretation maybe of the Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I will repeat myself, God is not required to fix everything. And if you're the kind of Christian that lives with that kind of mindset, I require God to fix everything. Maybe just me saying that today will help you. Because you don't see Him fixing everything because He's not supposed to. Yes, we believe in the power of prayer. And yes, we believe that God can do anything. But what I'm saying to you is He is not required to fix everything. I mean, in the... Early years of the church, man, they got into what was called scholasticism. And they would, they would talk crazy stuff, you know. Well, if God's God, you know, then they ask questions like, how many angels can dance on the pen, on the head of a pen, the head of a needle? 
just crazy questions, you know. Well, if God can do anything, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, a needle? So, for you and I to go through life thinking that God is going to fix everything and He's required to do that is not true. So that's why I say if a person goes through divorce, not only do they experience, you know, the devastation to the children and the devastation uh, sometimes financially, trying to support two houses, but emotionally, physically, spiritually. Why didn't you fix this, God? I've been serving you, been faithful to you. And brothers and sisters, a lot of people quit the church when they go through a divorce because they feel like God let them down. That statement right there can apply to not only marriage, but so many areas that you face in your life. And you wonder why God doesn't come and straighten it all out. Because He's not required to. And so what happens, brothers and sisters, this spiritual devastation comes. You, you can literally, you can become so, so bitter and so full of hatred. So angry. At who? God. You're bitter and you're angry toward God because He was supposed to fix it. And He didn't. He is not required to. Okay, yes, we're going to pray about it. Yes, we're going to believe. But we still have to understand truth. Sometimes you have to get, you have to walk with God in such a way. God, if you don't fix this, you're not required to. I'm still going to serve you. I love you. I'm not going to let myself get bitter. I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to get angry at you. But God, forgive me for thinking you were supposed to fix it. It's not your problem. You need to understand, though, brothers and sisters, it is not the will of God. Divorce is not the will of God. It's not what He chooses. It's not what He wants. He hates putting away. But He's not going to jump in there and tell a thousand angels to dance on the head of a pen either just to satisfy your curiosity. Which means do whatever you want Him to do whenever you want Okay, I'm coming to a close. But in life, you and I have to understand that change, things can change and happen so quick. So quick. If God wills this and that. If God wills, we'll go here or go there. If God wills, I don't know. What's going to happen, Pastor? I don't know. Is God going to fix it? So the psychological damage, the emotional damage, the spiritual damage. And then the next thing that's dangerous, divorce, some don't move on. 
they don't move on. Okay? So what they do, brothers and sisters, is they'll sit around and and they'll hope. Okay, uh, you know, I'm hoping for my marriage to be restored. So I'm not moving on. And the person that their ex in some cases is married to another woman and got two or three kids. But yet, I'm not going to give up hope. I'm going to believe that God's going to restore my marriage. What you have to do is you have to move on with your life. You have to go on with life. Because if, if they're married and they got some more kids, it's not going to happen. We talked about this earlier. Do not train your spouse to do something wrong. How many marriages have been in this situation? Divorce happens because the person says, I've been living with this for so long, so many years, and nothing's going to change, and I've had it, I'm fed up. And we're getting a divorce. It's over. Okay? And the problem is, okay, if somebody came to me and said, Pastor, we're done, we're, I'm fed up, it's been going on for 20 years. The question then has to be asked, why didn't you stop it? Why did you let this condition go on and on and on and on and on and on for years and years and years? And you knew there was a problem there and you would never step in for the same, remember, you trying to keep the peace instead of make peace. You never stepped in and said, "Oh no, this has to change." See, if if you never did that, then what you're doing is you're basically training the man to keep doing the evil that he's doing. And he's I'm had it. I'm so tired. I'm so tired of you being a womanizer. I put up with you for 20 years. I'm out of here now. You should have put your foot down the first year. Well, I did it because I thought God wanted me to stay with you. No, you just trained him. You, you literally have the person that you trained because you became an enabler. Give God some praise. At some point, you got to stop training your spouse. Stop making them feel like it's okay to keep doing what they're doing and it's wrong. Hallelujah. 
So I don't know what it is in your marriage specifically that you're dealing with that you're allowing to go on and on and on and on and you know it's not right. And then you wonder why now you're fed up and you're out the door. The reason is because you trained your spouse all of those years to continue to live with either bad habits or, you know, evil practices. Okay? Stay married. To stay married. If you stay married then, based on what we've told you before, it's going to help the economy. Yours. <laughs> Yours and a lot of other people's. It will help your economy if you stay married. Okay, But here's what you're going to have to do. But number one, if you want to want to support one house, stay married. <laughs> right? It takes a lot of money to support two homes. You have to keep coming to the church house. And understand there's my physical home, there's my spiritual home, and there's my long home. My long home is the New Jerusalem. And if I'm going to make it to my long home, the New Jerusalem, eternity, then I need to work on making my physical home whole and my spiritual home, the church, work. See, if I fail in my physical home, my natural home, that will affect my spiritual home, the church. If you lose both, if you lose your physical home and your spiritual home, you're in danger of losing the long home. Amen. Amen. So what I what, what I have to do and what you have to do as parents is I have to keep coming to church because I got to keep my spiritual home in place. I'll keep my spiritual home in place. Hopefully that will help me keep my physical home in place and then I'll make it to my long home in New Jerusalem. But if you want to be economically or have economic success, then stay married. What you do is you bring your kids to church. Amen. Raise them in the church house, the spiritual home. Have a Christian home for them to live in. Have a good Christian witness. In your physical home, the church house, you bring them to the house of God, the Word of God's put inside of them. And then they're going to grow up, brothers and sisters. And you're going to have to plunge them out there into the world. And if you've raised them right, they will become productive. So it's important to stay married for economic reasons. Not only for your own economic reasons, but for your kids' re- economic reasons. When they grow up, hopefully, you know, throw them out in the world, they become productive citizens. Right? Number two, again in this section, study the Bible four days a week. 
and it'll change you. Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 12. Y'all familiar with this one about the third chord? Okay. Okay, Ecclesiastes 4.12, If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Broken. Now, in okay, so we got we got marriage. Got we got a marriage. A man and a wife. That's two. Okay. You see, if I'm standing by myself and I get attacked, I'm standing by myself. Right. If I got somebody standing with me, and I'm attacked, I'll be able to withstand better with somebody with me than by myself. So it's a good thing to have a wife standing beside you and a husband standing beside you because there's there's going to be attack that's going to come in life. And if you've got somebody with you, you can withstand that attack. But the third cord is not easily broken. Who's the third cord in the passage? It's God. God has to be the third cord. You put make God the third cord, it's not easily broken. Now, listen to me carefully. The doctor said, okay, he said, if God is not the third cord in the marriage relationship, there are other things that will become the third cord. And he seemed to always go back to that one thing called pornography. If God is not the third cord, he said, pornography will become the third cord. Or many other things will become the third cord. So it is important for us to put God, Jesus Christ, who is God, the Word of God, back into our life and have that third cord because it's not easily broken. It can withstand tremendous attacks, all kinds of pressures from the world. You can survive. Now, the last thing, Ecclesiastes 12 and 11. <clears throat> it is very, very important for us all to learn to follow instruction. <clears throat> okay? Follow instruction, follow directions. Which, in closing tonight, is everything we've learned, okay? Is to take everything we've learned and and follow them, those these directions. Now, here's what it says: Ecclesiastes twelve eleven. The words of the wise are as goads. Y'all know what an ox goad is, right? Is that real sharp pointed tool that the farmer has when the oxen are yoked together and they're plowing in the field, and he'll prick. It's very sharp. It's pointed. The ox goat, he'll prick the back of the leg of the ox to direct it. 
Now, sometimes the ox will kick back because it doesn't like that prick. Well, when it kicks back, I mean, it's painful because it just keeps sticking him. That's what a lot of people do when they come to church. They just keep coming to church, coming to church, and they just keep kicking back and kicking back and kicking back and kicking back. <coughs> they get more and more hurt because <coughs> they're kicking against the pricks. And then that's what God told Paul. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. But he's saying it's hard for you to kick against that ox goad. It's sharp. Okay. So the wise man, the words of the wise, are like that goad. That very sharp instrument. And as nails fastened by the master of assemblies. Which are given from one shepherd. Now that is intense. He says that's the way the words of the wise are. That last part's intense. He said it's like nails, sharp nails, if you will, in a bat. Sharp nails in a stick. I mean, to get hit with one of those sticks, got sharp nails sticking out of it, that is painful. That is intense. And God says that's the words of the wise that's given to one shepherd. That, that word is spoken. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it hurts, man. Can you imagine getting hit with a stick that's got nails sticking out of it? The point being is this. Although it may sound like, oh, that's, that's, I can't handle that. I don't want that. What he's showing you, it's wisdom. Because when you follow the Word of God, follow the instructions, as, as painful as it can be at times. How many of y'all know sometimes the Word of God is painful, man? But when we follow it, there can be a good result. There can be a good outcome. Amen? How many of y'all believe that? It can change things. change things. So please stand. So if we're willing to follow these instructions, do you know what? It can change the outcome so that it doesn't end up in divorce. The good news tonight is you can get your passion back. Some of you are looking at me like, that had to be a miracle. It's simply following the directions. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm going to get my passion back. Not, I mean your wife, I'm sorry. <laughs> Amen. We want to talk to the right person. Sister Christine, I can get my, well, I, you know I have passion. I don't need to get mine back. Look at your wife or husband and say, I'm going to get lost passion back. 
Tell him I'm going to get my enthusiasm back. Tell him I'm going to get my excitement back. Christine, are you saying these words? <laughs> Amen. So this is this is theology for everyday life. Okay, I hope it's been a blessing to you. Okay, so let's pray. Father, we come before you right now, God. Tonight, we pray that you would take your word as we receive it with meekness. Take your word, implant it in our soul, and let it produce harvest—a harvest of marriages that are no longer miserable. Harvest, God, of a Christian home. You're the center. The Word of God is the center. We thank you today. Everything can change, God. It can change. Trust in you for it. Ignite passion, enthusiasm, and excitement once again in the marriages of your people. We give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. Amen and amen.